0: Hey, everybody. Lots of new shows opening up this fall, which means lots of New York Times reviews coming out. Make sure you're the first to know what the New York Times thought of the show by getting the Did He Like It app for your iPhone or go to didhelikeit.com and register for the email. Now on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Hello everybody, you're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast. I'm Ken Davenport. I'm very excited for my guest today. And that's because you know how I like to say that the theater is 10 years behind every other industry out there. Well, I think our guest today thinks 10 years ahead of every industry out there. That was him. He is also what I call the leader of the immersive theater revolution. His name is Randy Weiner. Welcome, Randy. Ken, it's great to be here. Randy is one of the creators of The Donkey Show, which actually helped inspire me to create my first show, The Awesome 80s Prom. He also produced the Drama Desk Award-winning premiere of Sleep No More here in the city. He created Queen of the Night at the Paramount Hotel. He's the co-owner of the super-exclusive nightclub theater secret society known as The Box. And his creative fingerprints have been all over a host of projects for everyone from Radio City, Cirque, big casinos in Las Vegas, major corporations, and a whole host of others. Randy, you have a very interesting theatrical career. How did it begin? How did it
1: begin? Where do I even even begin? Did you always? Um, No, no. Well, I could really begin it. I mean, I'm going to tell you the whole story just because you know all the people. So I grew up in New York City and my father loved theater. Like, he would take us to see four shows a weekend. So you would see a matinee on Saturday, you'd see a night show on Saturday, you'd see a matinee on Sunday, whatever little thing you could squeeze in also on top of it on Sunday. It was crazy. It was really crazy. And to this day, that's the way my father wants to interact with us. It's like, let's go see a show together. So he likes to sit in the dark, in silence and watch the show. And I really, um, you know, as a young person, and I think we all try and revolt against our parents, I, I just, it wasn't a way I wanted to really spend my time, but what I learned But what I've realized now is that I know so much about musical theater. I know so much about downtown theater. To his credit, he would take me to anything that was on TDF. He'd take me to this place called Equity Library Theater when it was around. I mean, I saw everything. I saw Tenderloin, these crazy revivals. I would see Emperor Jones done in some loft in Soho before Soho was like a fancy place you'd go when Soho was actually a dangerous place. And we'd be like two guys sitting on tree stumps and an audience of 50, which was completely empty except for the two of us and some guys running around screaming around us. I would go to the ridiculous theater. We'd go there. I was some like little kid seeing this like gay fantasias, like, and I'd be like eight years old. So I, I really saw everything. So I know somewhere deeply encoded in me is where, you know, all that experience, you know, ended up. But I didn't like it. I, I couldn't say I liked it. It was just something I was a goody two-shoes kind of kid. So I'd go along with my father and whatever he said, we would sort of do. But when I was in high school, I was really into sports. And I got injured. I went to an all-boys school where really it was all about grades and sports. So it was kind of a heaven for me because all I liked to do is study and do sports. I had no social life. I wasn't interested in you know, having fun. I wasn't interested in having I was an ultimate nerd. But I got injured and I didn't know what to do with myself. It's like, oh my God, there's a whole part of my life. What am I going to do? And a guy on my team said, oh, you know, why don't you go to this girl's school? And you can always get cast because they're so desperate for boys. And really, I'm truly the worst actor. I mean, truly. Like people say, they're probably thinking like, oh, already is exaggerating. But no, I mean, if, if you saw me like act, I'm horrible. I'm so in my head and wondering what I'm doing and... Also, I have a terrible memory. Like every aspect of acting, I mean, I really can't remember. If you give me five lines to remember and I had a week, I couldn't, I couldn't remember them. So anyway, so I, I go out audition for the show and I'm in and I get cast, of course, is like we're doing um, Wonderful Town and like there's four policeman roles, but, you know, the cast was like policeman number five, you know what I mean, doing the conga. And my current wife was at that girl's school in high school and she was, of course, the star of the show. And for some reason, it was like shooting fish in a barrel, because I'm like one guy with all these girls. So I get my pick of the girls, and of course, I chose my wife. And when I say it's, you know, the loveliest child of Diapolis, and you saw what I look like, and, you know, you'd be like, wow, Red, that was really fish in a barrel, because you really outclassed yourself. But, you know, that's circumstance, opportunity. You take advantage of what the cards you dealt. So um, I got together with Diane, and Diane love theater. So suddenly this thing that I had this dark secret in my life that I knew all about theater had tremendous value. And I knew all these things about theater. I knew how to go to TKTS. I knew everything. So we'd go see shows and I could speak very, you know, knowledgeably about everything. I think it was very impressive to Diane. And it was stuff that, you know, I wasn't even aware that I knew. It's just like, kind of like if you're Jewish, I said this to my kids, they're like, you don't learn anything at synagogue because we just said the high holidays. And I'm like, Yeah, but it just seeps in. You can't help it. You learn all those tunes. It's like a very interesting kind of knowledge. It's a more, I think, a more valuable kind of knowledge. So she's my girlfriend, and we go to college together. And, you know, that became a a sort of way we'd interact, too. We'd go see shows and talk about it afterwards. And then when we graduated, I was really into hip-hop music also growing up. So this is, you know, I'm old. I'm 51 years old now. So this is like, you know, in high school, listening to Grandmaster Flash and the Sugar Hill Gang, and literally my first date with my wife was at a Run DMC concert. So uh, literally, Run DMC's first concert, it was like, dude, we got these two kids from Queens coming to Manhattan introducing Run DMC. So when I was at college, there was like a little group of like sort of white Jewish kids who went to hip hop, you know, and we, I was like, I want to be in hip hop, but I can't, I'm not talented as a rapper, but maybe I can do a show. I don't know why I thought this. I'm going to do a show. I'm going to do a play. I'm going to use hip-hop music in it. And wow, I'm looking at your Hamilton book. there. It's, it's really, you know, that's the whole set, but they won't even talk about it. I will talk about it afterwards. But um, so we did a hip-hop musical, uh, my college roommate and I. And uh, it was a huge success. So I went to Harvard. So it was a huge success. So the way you define a huge success at Harvard is it was so big, we toured it to Yale. So we took the thing down to New Haven and we did this hip hop musical because, you know, I could have already known that hip hop But again, we're so far ahead of our time. This is like 1988 and like MC Hammer's first, MC Hammer doesn't even exist yet. Vanilla Ice doesn't exist. So we did the show. It was such a big hit. I skipped to that. I skipped to two years later. So my roommate and I get out of college and we're like, let's do another hip hop musical. It's so successful. So we put together this hip hop musical. We cast like we just literally go out to these clubs and if there was a kid who was a good dancer we'd go up to him and give him a flyer and you know we were just when I look back at what we did those were dangerous crack filled times we are just walking in the streets going up to any random person at a club who looked interested in us and we just put together this show just out of complete ignorance that you know we, we have to pay people no we'll convince them to do it it's going to be so fun so we got all these people and we ended up getting like Wyclef Jean, who I don't know if people even know who he is He was like in this group, The Fugees. And Lauren Hill, who was also in this group called The Fugees. And how did they meet and create The Fugees? My show, Chloe 12. So it was such like this nascent time that, and we were just right on the cutting edge of it. And we did the show, and it was a humongous hit again. Like all these young people were like, holy crap, this is crazy. And all these Hollywood people came like, Quincy Joes and, you know, Irving Azoff and Peter Guber, it was bananas. And my roommate and I were just like, this is crazy. we'd like, we'd come home and they you know, you have answering machines at your house and it would be like, hi, this is Disney and all these craziness. And so we, so suddenly I, I never dawned on me that I was going to do theater as any sort of profession, but somehow we were in the sort of business. We were getting offered all this money and getting offered to fly out to like LA to work on these shows. And I just remember going like to Quincy Jones' house and he'd be like, So what's the movie you really want to make? And I'd be like, I have no idea. I don't have any movie. I think I'm going to med school in a year. Like the whole thing was completely random. So then so I wrote in Hollywood for like two years. We wrote all these shows, but my wife was like doing theater and I kind of missed her. And I had a big agent at CA who's not like a partner at CA. It's the weirdest thing when I talk to him now. Because we were like these great guys who were like into hip hop, we're these Harvard guys, so we knew how to write you know comedy. But I didn't, I didn't have any aspiration to do that at all. So when I left, I'll never forget it. Because my wife was doing trying to make a theater company in Wisconsin, of all places, with this guy Paul Siltz, who started Second City. And he had a summer house in Wisconsin. And she's very clever. My wife, she was like, I'll go to Wisconsin. And we'll be the only game in town. We'll get all this sort of funding. So she was doing that. And she was like, but Randy, you know, we'll never see each other. This is my childhood you know, high school girlfriend. So I was like, OK. And like, I quit. Like sort of cold turkey on Hollywood. And my agent, I'll never forget it, what you're going to Minnesota? And I was like, No, no, no Wisconsin. Dude. It's like, whatever. You're crazy. So then I went and we started this. And from going from like being a little, you know, Jewish guy playing basketball all winter long with like the Baldwin brothers and, you know, all these other little Jewish guys. So I felt like I was actually talented. And I'm looking at UK so that I knew you can relate to this. I'd play there, make all this money. I would send the checks. I didn't even get a place. So I'd just send the checks home to my mom. And my mom would deposit. it. like, what is this for? I was like, I don't know. Because everything was in development and nothing happened. I think that was frustrating too. It was like, everything's in development. Nothing's happening. This is boring because I wasn't, you know, I didn't care about the money at that point. Even though I care about it now, but that's another story. So we started this theater in Wisconsin. My wife and I were just doing crazy shows. we do shows in bars. Whatever place was open, we would do a show. We did a bar play with a local, you know, sort of bar cover band. We did shows in Green Bay, part of, you know, Lake Michigan, this awesome, crazy Beethoven experimental piece where half the people are like, you know, 100 yards out in the water and... A bunch of kids are running on the sand or blasting Beethoven music so it was just like doing all these random fun things I, had, I just had a blast I, was, I think that was probably the happiest I ever was because it wasn't financial we were just doing things it was always interacting with the audience and then my wife decided she wanted to go back to um, Columbia to get an MFA so I kind of tagged along with it but I landed in New York I'm like oh my god what am I going to do now because I sort of had done this with her for three years and I got into the internet and I don't know how I did it. Somehow I created this internet. I just think people have gumption. Like, you know, I'm looking at you, can you get gumption? You know, I was just like, I'm going to make an internet company. So I made this internet company and we would make websites. And I didn't know how to do that. I just felt like the internet was exciting. You know, I'm always interested in like sort of what's exciting. And we were, again, I wouldn't say I was 10 years, I was 10 years ahead of my time with that one because it's like 19, you know, 95. And we're going to, like, Time Warner and telling about websites. And I kind of enjoyed it, actually, because it was kind of being messianic. Because I would be like, Jesus. or I'd be trying to convert people, you know what I mean, to this thing, the web that's so incredible. And, you know, they'd say, well, you know, you'd go meet Time Magazine. They'd be like, what is it, like a magazine? And I'd be like, yes! And you'd go meet, like, Newland. What is it, like a place they can show films? I'd be like, yes! And, you know, the music places, this is like a great, this is going to be a jukebox. I'd be like, yes! So I actually really did enjoy that. we made this very successful company. Um, because there was no competition. Again, I like to be in places where there's absolutely no competition. Then I'm trying to think what happened. Um, oh, the, okay. So, so I'm doing this internet company. I a ton of employees. It was crazy. And then I was still like dabbling with my wife because she sort of is at Columbia and doing shows at night. And I had this idea. I'll never forget. I go, I want to do this show. I want to do, because I love Midsummer Night's Dream. I thought Midsummer Night's Dream was the most clever plot. I was like, I want to do Midsummer Night's Dream and I want to set it in a nightclub like in the 70s because it's about, you know, drugs and love and, you know, youthful energy and passion. So, like, one morning, literally my wife woke up and I said, "Dad, I really want to do this thing. We're going to do this show. So she was like, okay, okay. So we we put together this show and I was like, first I was going to write the lyrics. I remember I was like, I'm going to make a dis i I'm going to write disco songs. And then I started, like, studying disco songs. I was like, well, this song is perfect. And that song, I can't possibly do better than that. So let's just put the songs together. And I mean, look, I'd never really seen a jukebox musical, I think. They weren't as big back in the old days. Like, in all my travels with my father, or maybe I saw them, but I didn't even appreciate it. Maybe it was an old Irving Berlin thing where it was songs that just got cobbled together, but I didn't understand. So I thought it really created something entirely new. And what a brilliant idea that like I was to take old songs and sort of reposition them and create stories sort of around them or characters around them. So we did that at a nightclub for a long time. And I just sort of got kind of dragged back into the theatrical world and I sold my part of the internet company stupidly because I think two years later it was worth like literally 10 times as much you know it was like it was was whatever that was like 1999 I think I just got it probably 1990 it was even closer it was even worse I try to make myself feel better to say it was two years probably like a month before the internet goes nuts and all my other partners made all this money and you know whatever. Then I just started doing this show at a nightclub. And I think I've just, my whole life's been randomly opportunistic, right? I got to, because we decided to do Donkey Show in a nightclub because that's just seemed cooler um, to actually set a show in a nightclub rather than make a theater at nightclub, make it happen in a nightclub. So I got to be very close with the owner of the nightclub, like super close. And his family was like this incredible family that had run, you know, the Copa Camp. It was like from a long line of like these nightclub, you know, people. So he just taught me everything about nightclubs. And it was the funniest thing because I just became sort of, it was I was like a biochemistry major at Harvard. And I'm like best friends now with this guy who owns like nightclubs. And we would talk at night about the Bible and about, you know, Roman armies. Like this guy, John Steele, you know, is his name. And I I just love that guy. And he would just teach me things about how the bar worked. But he adored us because we took his club where he would have, doing hip hop nights and they had to have like, bulletproof vest, and suddenly we're doing Donkey Show, which is all bachelorettes, as you know only too well. And, you know, it's a constantly driving traffic. It's not like promoters, you know, where you're like hit and miss, maybe this promoter's work. And just got this footprint. So every night it was very predictable what his income would be. And that's all a club owner wants. So literally he gave me the keys to his club. He's like, Randy, you're in charge of this club. And he actually said an interesting thing to me. He was like, I, you know, my family read the Copa Cabana. And the way clubs have turned out to be that it's a club with four speakers. And um, you know a DJ and some famous people. That's not a club, too. A club is a place you need to shut. So he, he kind of loved shows, and also in a funny twist, he's like he'd always talk about, "I was Hal Prince's bodyguard." So that was one of his great claims to baby You know, is you're like, yeah, it was Hal Prince's bodyguard. So that made him seem like he understood, you know, what we were going through. So. I just got to know the club business because he really put me in charge of everything. I was like suddenly in charge of the ball. I don't even drink. It's the funniest thing because I own all these bars, but I literally don't drink. So when people are talking about whiskey, I don't know what that is. I don't know what bourbon. I don't. I literally don't know what they are. People always treat me because they you know Randy owns these bars, and I'm just, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I got good at getting sponsorships from like Budweiser, all these different groups, and then. You know, I, I had the key, So I'd just be like, hey, little group, do you want to do your show? And soon people were reaching out to me. They'd be like, Randy, you know, we have a show we think would be good in a club. And I would always say, like, listen, if you think your show is good in a club, you don't, don't be under delusion. It has to be a show that doesn't try to turn the club into a theater. It has to be a show that works as a club. So you can't tell me, like, oh, my guy who's running around with a thing of ice, you know, to set up the bar. Oh, shh, for this part, it's a very, you know, it's like, it's got to work in the club. So it was just interesting, like, who could really understand that? Who could deal with the circumstances? And who wouldn't. it's kind of amazing, like, you know, all the people we worked with, we worked with Rachel Chapkin, You know what I mean? We worked with, she was our intern. Literally, she was our intern. I all like, this is so interesting. What a novel way to think of it. We worked with, you know, the civilians. Like, all these different groups would come in, and I was just like, it was like I had a sort of a fringe festival going on there all the time. And then from doing that, though, he, the owner was getting all the barn. I was like, wow, you know, I'm telling myself, I'm bringing all the people in here. I'm dealing with the economics of a of a show, which is a much tighter margin than the margin on alcohol. And also what's really weird about alcohol is you buy a ton of it. It doesn't spoil. Like if I have a show and no one shows up, you spoil it. All those actors, you know, I just wasted all that money. And I don't get to like, you know, say, okay, guys, I paid you. Will you please do it again when someone actually wants to consume it versus the alcohol? So... I got really interested in um, owning a club, and he had taught me so much. And he was very supportive, and we at the at the at that same time, the Highland was getting big. So that club where our donkey show was got blocked. Well, literally, one guy one day a guy knocks on the door. He's like, oh, "This give this letter to the owner." So I give letter the letter to the owner. The owner like opens. It. I was like, "Holy crap!" Because it was for millions of dollars. Suddenly, this literally it was just like a taxi stand. I mean, the roof leaked like on a rainy day that we'd have to put buckets everywhere. And suddenly it was just worth millions of dollars because the air rights increased because of the Highland. They gave all these sort of rights to the to the neighbors. He was just barely in that. So he got, he got this buyout, like literally it was like July 24th, let the guy in, July 25th, see you guys. So at that point, I was also opening a club and I think he felt a little bad for me that he just kind of kicked us out. So I was we created this thing called The Box, which again was a theatrical kind of club. It's, I think I, I'm always interested in the hybrid. Is it a club? Is it a show? I think you want to honor both. You want it to have the qualities that make a good show, but also the qualities that make a good club. And you can't, you know, you can't disappoint the audience on, on either front. So we started this thing, The Box, and we do all these variety shows. And my partner's in it with this guy, Simon Hammerstein, who's of the illustrious Roger and Hammerstein family. But he, you know, he... He, like me, and like our third partner, this guy, Richard Kimmel, who worked with the Worcester Group, we all were looking for a different relationship between audience and performer and a different way to frame frame just what theater could be. Like, why is it like when you go to a club, you have to go through a Red Rocks, but when you go through a theater, you're, you're begging people, please come to my show. You know, like, how do you create that kind of, you know, sex, sex appeal and demand? So I, we were successful at The Box, and now it's, you know, been going on for like 10 years. Um, We opened another box then in London that's six years old. And I got to know an audience that was upscale and, you know, interested in progressive things. So I was like, I want to find something new for them. And I I got introduced to the guys from Punch Drunk who do Sleep No More. And I was lucky because a lot of people were starting to sniff around. They were starting to get a profile in London, but they had all seen the donkey show. So they were like, oh, you know, Randy, you know, actually gets doing something that's really unusual, but knows how to make a commercial. So I really think that, that, that at that point, that really became my niche. Like, how do we take something that feels very progressive, which is what the docu show was, which is what the box is. But I think I created those shows, but suddenly I had these people who were not me, like who saw me in this way. I was like, oh my God, I guess that's what I am now. I'm like a guy who, you know, knows how to, you know, take these sort of strange things and, you know recontextualize them, reframe them, and suddenly you can charge a lot of money. Because all the acts in the box, you can go, you know, down the street, pay 15 cents, you don't know, have to see the next, but suddenly at the box, the way you framed it, you know, you buy $10,000 bottles of champagne. So we were successful. I think when I first did Thick No you can imagine I'm reaching out to raise money, and I'm like, yeah, so we're doing this thing, and it's, you know, six floors, and all these rooms, and people are running around in masks, chasing the performance. Everyone looked at me like we were completely, completely crazy. But we were able to, you know, and I would just say that I'm going to charge a hundred dollars a ticket for our people who like, what? And I said, because it's about, you know, where you're present. Like what's fun about what I do versus Broadway is I get to help define the experience by choosing a price point. It's not, I'm not locked into anything. There's no norm. No one else is doing anything where you wear a mask and run after character. So it just, it was interesting because I think people thought, well, that'll be fine for a $40 thing. I'm like, no, no, no. This is an elite you know, aspirational thing where we're gonna charge a hundred dollars a ticket advertising, like, no, no way, it's impossible. So and you know, I was like, We're not gonna do any marketing for it. And was like, no, you can't do it to the point that I literally had to lie almost on the on the um, papers I sent out, because i was sending them out and having zero marketing, they'd be like, How can you just listen with zero marketing? And I said, Well the key to this is that it's so extraordinary, which it really is People are going to talk about it. The people but don't you need money? Don't you need to make some way, at least for people to communicate with other people? And I was like, you know something? There's this incredible thing that's like with billions of dollars that's really good at getting the word out. It's called Facebook. So all that has to happen is if I do something extraordinary, someone can go home. Put on their Facebook page. I love this show. And immediately 200 people know about it. I don't need to reinvent Facebook. I don't need to take an ad. If the thing's awesome, everyone's going to know about it. So that was a big thing that I would argue with people about. And I just think for so many reasons, that's a key to the success of that show because it comes from people. There's never a moment where I'm, you know, blasting it. You still have a sense of discovery with that show and that sense of discovery needs people to own it and really feel special and feel like evangelists just like I was for the internet. I think tapping into that evangelism in people, something I really connect with I like when you're passionate about something or like how do we let the audience be part of that sort of passionate community.
0: So let me ask you a question about that specifically because I remember you mentioning this at your TEDx Broadway the first Ooh. year, your first speech. So just so everyone is clear, Randy's marketing budget for Sleep No More was zero. And it continues to be. And it continues to be. Do you think that model would ever work for a Broadway show? Absolutely. I think, I think people are so scared
1: and so used to doing things. And you know this as well as I do. People are so used to doing things, you know, just the way they've been done. And so afraid to do things differently. And I think Broadway suffers because it's like a little ecosystem you know, where the GMs are used to working with the marketing companies. And everyone is sort of, you know, their little beast in the, in the jungle who needs the other people. You know, so it's all related. And I just think the problem with Broadway, the problem to me and why I'm terrified of Broadway is you've got 40 shows in this very confined area which are essentially doing the same thing. Because I'm so crass about shows. Like I see it more of as an experimental theater person where... What happens? We all sit sitting in the light, we're sitting in a row, like I was explaining me and my dad did for all these different shows, and then all of a sudden lights go out on us, and lights start to come up on the stage, and the curtain goes up, and then you laugh or you cry, you watch the people dance and get excited, and at the end you all stand up and give a standing ovation. And that's what happens in every single show. And you might say, Randy, that's so simplified, but no, that's what it is. That's what we're paying for, is to laugh cry, have a heartbeat a little faster when someone dances, and then stand up and applaud the show. And of course, ourselves, that we watch, you know, the shows, that's going make the show, so be standing ovation. So if you look at it like that, all these shows are fungible. And, and you see it. Like, every year, there's one show that does well, or one show that does really, really well. I mean, you, you know the stats better than I do, but like, you get the idea. There's one show that's an outlier that does really, really well. Or one year, maybe it only does really well. But then there's a show that does well, and then there's a show that maybe do good. And then... Every year, those sort of cycle through in a very predictable fashion, you know, the really, really well show now is only doing good and the good shows are all gone and new shows take their place. So no one really cares, you know what I mean, about the shows. And you could you could say, well, they're keeping up with the times, they're refreshing themselves, and they're like the skin on our body, like you slough off some skin and some new skin takes its place, but it's all just skin. So I'm trying to do, you know, elbows or ears, you know, just something completely different. But I think within the skin world, sometimes you can have really, really nice skin, like, you know, Hamilton. And I think Hamilton maybe has a freckle on it and some hair. So that differentiates it enough. Like, did they really need to spend money marketing it? I don't think so. You know what I mean? He might say, well, you need it because everyone will give the same reasons. You need it to hold, you know, whatever it is, mind space or whatever. But did they need, you know, were, did they need advertising on that? I really doubt it. I'm sure Jeffrey Solis is something like Shoot Me Now. I would be like, you know, you,
0: I don't know. Like no, it's I'm interesting, wrong. actually. I would say Jeffrey is one of those people that advertises less than others because I think he buys into this concept. I think people probably fight him for more advertising dollars on the shows that he wants to yeah. give. So it's just a question
1: of degree. So could he have gone down to zero? Absolutely. He could have gone down to zero. I don't think there's anyone buying it. At this point I mean I think that at other points you might need it because you are competing in the in this sort of um, there's some great book about this I can't remember what it's called it's like about fighting in the bloody like pool or just being off by yourself and the problem is you guys are in a bloody pool in Broadway and that's like I said that's a tough fight and I don't ever want to get involved in that because I'm too chicken but so I'd rather just be off in my own little.
0: You know niche. So in your in your story, you said something actually at the very beginning, which I think is probably still happening to you. You did those first couple shows and all of a sudden Quincy Jones is leaving messages on your answering yeah. machine and Disney's calling. And from what, I, you know, we've been friends for a long time. So I've heard some of these stories from you. And you're, what's great about you is you're always surprised. Like, Ken, you'll never believe who, who called crazy, me. Yeah. And that seems to happen a lot. Like, again, this is why I believe you're ahead of the curve in terms of what people want. Why are they calling? Like, what is it about your shows or the things that you create that you think people are tapping into and saying, oh, I want whatever's next for him? What, what is that thing? Can you put your finger on it?
1: Well, I think I really do try and be progressive. And I think so much of the community either gets stuck in doing what's traditional. And I try and sort of break every role, if that makes sense. And I think that's so refreshing for audiences. Like, I was just talking about this. When we did, we did this in Queen of the Night. So Queen of the Night, we had a $200 ticket. So you'd have dinner, you'd watch a show. It was a novel idea called Dinner Theater, right? So you'd watch a show, get dinner, $200, get a certain kind of food, $500, get some cooler food, $1,000. It was a mystery what we were going to give you. So these people buy $1,000 tickets. And people bought them. Absolutely. Not knowing what they were going to get. No. So, and that was part of the fun of it. I'm gonna get, get. so excited. If you've got a thousand dollars to buy on a ticket, you're looking for something that's unpredictable. So all those people, they're also used to if they're not paid a thousand dollars. You know, their assistants would call. Are you sending over a limited to pick them up? And they're like, No, we are not. And then we we'd say like, But we do have a special entrance for them. So the special entrance for them would be the way the bus boys came in. So they would go through the slimy entrance where they would do it because it would happen in a hotel. They'd have the steam from the like the the washing machine room going. And then they go down and they end up in the kitchen. And when they get there, we put an apron on them and we hand them a tray of hors d'oeuvres and we say, "Welcome. You will now take this tray of hors d'oeuvres and you will go outside and feed all the other guests. And when you're done, come back and we'll give you a a, a special gift. But do not come back. Do not try to come back until your whole tray is completely empty." And these people were so excited, and that speaks to my whole, you know, mo. I think every negative. Is a positive. Everything that people say is impossible is an opportunity to do something different. And the fact that people feel the need to advertise, if I can say when I look at you and I say I don't advertise, you're like, wow, he's doing something like that alone makes you think, well, he's really confident, or he must have something really great. Or wow, that everything starts to shift. So I think my whole thing is to zigzag through life. It's like I do this thing, then I try and do something the opposite. I really learned that from Donkey Show. Uh, because I did, this is the greatest gift I give to myself every day is to remind myself to remember the role of the Donkey Show. So, Donkey Show was set in a nightclub with disco music. So, everyone's like, oh my God, you've broken a whole new format here. You're going to do Donkey Show now with rock music, and it's going to appeal to the rock, and it's going to be huge. So, we tried a Donkey Show with rock music. And you know something? It was fun. It was totally fun, but the audience didn't love it because it wasn't new. And that's when I learned the power of new and progress. And, I learned thank God, at a very young age. And after that, I was always like, I don't... Because people always go, well, what's the next Sleep No More? So I was like, I'm not doing the next Sleep No more. I'm doing the next thing. So I think that appeals to people. And I think maybe there probably is a smart way to make money by doing the next Sleep No More. And you can imagine a broad way of Sleep No esque things. But it's a different thing from what I'm doing. I'm trying to do always the next thing. And I, and I just know that has a lot of appeal. But truthfully, I bet on immersive theater. Because when you talk about my life and the calls I get, and the calls I get now are such a shocking level, Ken. You can't imagine the call. I mean, you could probably imagine, but like, I have like private equity firms, you know, calling me saying we believe immersive theater is the next, and they'll often say du something because they just need something to talk. About. They're like, you have this opportunity now to grow into something that could be worth you know billions of dollars. Now, when I think about how I started doing this, right on the street, literally doing street shows. It, I never thought this would at all be an outcome. Although looking back on it, it all seems predictable. And I think, in many ways, Sleep No more was a sort of a point of inflection because it had such scale and it had such a profile footprint in the, in the media. It just made everyone take notice of this thing that immersive theater, whatever you want to call it, experiential theater... And what's interesting to me, just being older, doing it, and, you know, just even looking back to Tony and James, I'm like, this has existed forever. People used to want to get high? Come on. Since, since the awesome 80s prom, people love this. thing. They just love it. And it's funny that no one, you know, gets, it, like, gets involved in it at scale the way I do. And I don't know what that is. And maybe it's because my mind just loves it. My mind and heart are so in it. And maybe people are now. I mean, I constantly hearing people like, oh, this guy quit being a studio head and now he's creating an immersive theatrical space. But I think there's a lot of room for more immersive theater. And I, and I believe the whole market raises all the boats. Like it's like a tide that's raising everyone. I don't know. It's, it's it's this extraordinary thing where it's like a new medium. So I think that's very appealing now to these people, these sort of investment people. Like this is a new medium and you're the leader in the medium. So, you know, maybe you can take over
0: more of the Mindscape or Dollarscape. Just like the owner of the club gave you the keys to the theater years ago and said, "Do whatever you want." What would you do if one of the Schuberts said to you, "Here is the keys to one of our Broadway theaters. Do what you want with it." What would you What would you do with it?
1: It's funny. I am not. I am not going to answer that directly. I am going to say this. I, I get offered a business that's really suffering because no Schubert's going to do it because you guys are crushing it on Broadway now. You know what I mean? So I am not. I'm, that's a hypothetical that I am going to address by saying. All malls are just dying. They are just dead because, you know, and I'm the worst perpetrator of death for these people because I go to every mall. And I used to try to pretend like, oh, I'm looking and I might actually buy it here. But I don't no, I don't even really pretend. I'm like, let me try on a size 11 shoe, 11 and a half and a 12. OK, the 11 and a half fits. Great goodbye. Versus like, oh, you know, I want to show it to my wife. I used to make up some reason. Now I'm just like, I'm out of here, and I will literally sit there brazenly and be looking it up on Amazon at the same time that you know have it sent to my house. I don't have to carry it. I mean, everything about doing on Amazon is better, cheaper. So they're all suffering. So a lot of them came to me. They're like, Randy, you know, can you? Fi- we need it to be more entertainment. Can you figure out a way to take our malls and turn them into entertainment experiences so that people come to the mall and they want to you know be there for entertainment and that they're fantasizing that's going to work out to retail sales I'm not even talking about the retail sales I'm just talking about the fantasy of delivering entertainment to a mall I'm like guys your malls are not made for an experience your malls are the anti randy Center. boxes that are all laid out so I just think you know when you talk about a Broadway theater why would I do that I mean I've Again, Randy Weiner, great historical theater person, there was a show Crowbar that Matt Wellman did. Damn, I'm good. I have so much knowledge. Like, it's funny because people look at me in theater like, this guy, he's just so weirdo doing, you know, stuff on streets and in, like, you know, clubs. But I got crazy knowledge of, of theater. So, you know, he did. they did a show, and it was about to haunted kind of um, – Annie Hamburger did it from On Guard Arts. So it was like a haunted – experience of a of a theater where there were the ghosts sort of Z field and things like that I definitely wouldn't do that but it was fun I think just to be in that theater and look around behind you and have but people are doing like a lot of immersives I mean more and more than Tasha Pierre it's going to be ridiculous like stuff's happening all around you but I just think a theater it doesn't have a kind of a frisson for me you know, so I would say thank you, Schubert. So I really appreciate that. But if I were going to do, do a show at a Schubert house, I would do a show for the Broadway audience because also neighborhoods matter too. And I think to come to Broadway, if you're a, um, a you know, an immersive fan, it's 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 a it's a beast of an experience. You know, like, so I've always thought
0: that it's the the younger the next generation of theater goers seems to be the current generation of immersive theater. Although it's getting older for sure now. But what happens in 20 years? Do you think Broadway will still be the same? Or will the audience that you're really cultivating and developing right now that loves and craves this style of entertainment, will they want that from Broadway? Do you think they will reject the Schubert's rigidness? Yes. This is Randy Weiner futurist moment, which I love doing. That's why I ask ah, this question. I, I want the
1: future. Sure, here's the future. Here's exactly what's going to happen. Write it down. Put it in a, a lockbox and it'll be exactly like that. So in 20 years, here's exactly what's going to happen, people. So listen carefully. Broadway will be crushing it. Broadway is the absolute greatest business in the world because the way I perceive Broadway is is the greatest real estate story ever because you're selling timeshares of seats where you sit for a certain number of hours and you have a view of this thing and then you give up your timeshare and some other schmuck comes in and pays the same you don't really get you know anything other than like seat for like three hours that's what you bought and that's never going to change because there's a great thing called broadway shows that are unbelievable with unbelievably talented people and you want to engage with them and i think people are always going to want to engage with them. it's like i take i see my kids my kids are on you know snapchat they're on all these things that i could have never imagined they're nine and 12 years old but they love broadway shows i mean they can't see that you know they can't see finding neverland enough times you know what i mean they just love it so that's not going anywhere but when I take my kids to, when I don't take them to sleep anymore because I don't want to ever be a bad parent, but I, I'll walk them around there during the day and they'll be so excited, like running around the halls. And, and that's just a different kind of experience. It's just like a different media. So they're still going to want Broadway. They're going to want these kind of experiential things, but they're going to go to both. And that's fine. What's different about what we do in live and what's awesome is we're never going to have all the drama that like TV, had. when I go back to my like Time Warner thing, those poor guys, you know. In TV and magazines and newspapers, where it's like I, I I don't my newspaper now doesn't exist on paper, and like I don't watch TV in any way remotely like the way I watched TV, you know, when I was little with commercials and you had to watch at this particular time. That's not going to happen at theater because it has to. That's not going to happen at Broadway. So Broadway is going to be, in fact, in twenty years, the most the same thing in the history of the world. Maybe there'll be more video productions, but you'll still be essentially doing a timeshare by of like I'm buying these three hours. Everyone's going to get together, which is an extraordinary thing. Which is an extraordinary, like on a spiritual human way. I find it very touching. But that's going to just keep going on. But what I do, I think, is going to keep changing and keep keep developing. But it'll still involve human interaction. And what I do is like live interactions with different sort of relationships between audience and performer.
0: You mentioned raising money for for Sleep No More and some other projects and how it being challenging describing what this is or Mark. So how how do you do it? What's the secret to explaining people? what something is that they can't really envision until they're in it. How do you raise money for something like that? Well, the way I raise money is you try
1: and get some person. There's always someone out there and it's a lot of work, but I actually enjoy it. Like I feel like raising money is a kind of storytelling. I'm sure you talk to people about raising money. I'm sure someone's probably said the same thing, but like I feel like it's, it's a way to sort of actually kick the tires even on your project. Like it's how do you explain, it actually teaches me how the marketing works and what are the, ways i describe it that make people light up with possibility so i i actually love it it's like my greatest kind of grassroots kind of outreach because i'll take people to a space and i'll start showing them and you know they'll feel like they're on the inside so even if they don't invest so I, I i look at it as the most positive experience raising money even if it's actually hard to get the dollars but i just think it's again that gumption thing it's like some people you're not going to stop me i'm going to get the money I'm gonna figure it out. You know, we're gonna. I'll become friends with the landlord. I'll do whatever I have to do to sort of, you know, make it work. Because if you believe in something strong enough, I
0: think anyone who's a producer, you you figure it out. You you have worked with some big corporations and some big brands out there. How do they take to this independent spirit of yours? What I love about you is you're like the wizard behind the curtain, or you're throwing rocks at an industry, which seems to be somewhat the opposite of the way a big corporation will work, Radio City, how does that work? How is it for them? And how is it for you when you're brought into those situations?
1: I think for me, it's a constant learning to have confidence in yourself. So I think I think the more I believe what I'm saying is true, the more I can look them in the eye and be like, I'm not gonna you know, cue to your what you normally do. The more actually they like it and the better product you get. But the truth of the matter is, with something, when it's a Structo Soleil or Radio City, you're working with so many people. and There's so much infrastructure. I actually find it really hard. And I and what's sad to me is, like, a lot of the things that I know so much in my heart, I do give in. And, you know, this is it's completely honest. And in a way, the corporate people are happier because we didn't take a risk. You know, no one's going to get fired because I did what everyone else did. You'll only get fired if I didn't do what anyone else did and it went bad. So... The truth of the matter is, sadly, I tend to let myself be sort of sanded down the, the great edges that make me who I am. But that being said, I I you know I love working with Search Say. I actually really love working at, at Radio City also because of the scale of it. But again, you're working with you know so many collaborators and you're working on something that already has such a built-in audience. I know their audience would like it if you kept pushing it. You know, that's the
0: sad sort of thing about it. All right. My last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, Randy, I want to thank you for your incredible contributions to the theater as a whole. You are pushing the boundaries and pushing us to new directions. I want to thank you by granting you one wish. What drives you so crazy or gets you really, really mad about Broadway or the New York City theater environment? Maybe it's something you and your wife, she tells you something about she's experienced in one of her shows. What makes you so mad that you would jump up and down and scream and yell and ask this genie to wish it away and and only one? I know you. You could probably do about ten or twenty of these.
1: Yeah, yes, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm stopping just myself. Just one. I'm stopping myself from giving, giving the doing the longest. No, that's the, not true at all. The big rant. Uh that's really not true at all. You must think like, you're you're gonna hate me for saying this, but I love all the problems. Like all those problems they're fantastic for me because what they are is what I said they're opportunities like I wouldn't change like what I do is I take those problems and I try to turn them into something sort of positive for me I know that's a terrible answer because I didn't I sort of went sideways on you but like that's right that's, that's what you do that's right? what yeah. I do you know what I mean like I can never give a straight answer it's really a problem now you know I don't know how my wife puts up with it I wanted to start with my wife and with my wife but she does somehow. But but it's, it's really impossible it's impossible to deal with me, because that's what I will always do, is you'll pose a question and I'll be like, well, what if, you know, actually those terrible things are exactly what makes my life successful, makes my opportunities happen? Like, because, you know, you have things on Broadway where you'll have, you know, I don't know, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, you deal with so many, so many issues that I don't deal with. Like, you're, you're dealing with a landlord who can tell you, you know, how the bathroom's operate, how the bar operates like all those things are opportunities for me to do something different so people are like wow you know that's amazing because i'm used to this. so please mr broadway genie do not change anything because all of those things are what i can play against and reverse and you know be successful
0: i love it. it's a terrific answer go sideways everybody thank you so much for being here thanks to all of you for listening and we will see you next time Don't forget to get the Did He Like It app for your iPhone today or go to the website didhelikeit.com, sign up for the email, make sure you're the first to know whether he liked it or not.